what I'd like to do this morning is persuade you uh, to agree with three crazy-seeming statements. And they are in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is what we are basing our current preaching series on. And they demonstrate Paul's total focus. And I, I want to encourage you uh, to believe God for you to get your focus as laser sharp as Paul was, even if that leads you to making statements which might not seem to make a huge amount of sense. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. Uh, Just to give you a bit of background, what's going on, Paul is writing to a church that he started 10 years earlier, and they have heard that he's in trouble and they've sent a gift to him. Well, he is in trouble. He's a prisoner. He is under house arrest in Rome. And uh, he's surrounded in that city by people uh, who seem to have some pretty bad motives against him. And they are preaching Paul's message, uh, but with, uh, for all the wrong reasons. And obviously, as he's under house arrest, Paul doesn't actually know what's going to happen in his life, whether he is going to live or die. So if all that was happening for you, uh, you're, you know, you've lost your freedom, uh, there are opponents all around you trying to wind you up, and you don't know whether or not you're going to be executed soon, how would you be feeling? Well, we're going to find out how Paul's feeling, and we're going to be probably a little bit shocked by that, and then we're going to work out why he was feeling that, and, and how actually we can come to the same conclusions that he came to. And we've already heard about that uh, during our time of worship, that God's wanting to speak to us, set an agenda for us, not have our agenda set by what is going on uh, to us, but actually for him and his ways uh, to really speak to us. And so I want to encourage with you with that this morning. We'll start by looking out for these three things that Paul says. We're going to read from uh, Philippians 1, uh, verses 12 to 26. As I say, there are three particular things in here that should make your, uh, should make your eyebrows ri- raise at least a little bit if you've really understood what's going on. Uh, so here we go. Paul, the guy who's in prison. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
So this is God's word to us. This is his uh, truth to us. So when it says things that seem strange, that seem a bit crazy to us, it's not that it's wrong, it's that we're wrong. And we've got to get our, we've got to get our heads the right way around. And uh, this, as I said, this passage I think has three pretty strange statements uh, that we wouldn't necessarily uh, think about being true. But they are, and they were. The first one is, here's Paul talking about his imprisonment. Paul is like the, he's the, the most amazingly gifted guy on earth, and he's following God, and he's going all over the place, preaching the gospel. And he says, his imprisonment, this has happened to me, it's really served to advance the gospel. He's, his losing of his liberty, he's being stuck in one house at a time, this has really served to advance the gospel. Then there are these other people who really don't like him. And in order to wind him up, they are preaching his message. And he says, I rejoice. Just like we all do when people try to wind us up. (laughs) And then when he's thinking about, am I going to be executed soon? Will I be released from prison? And he says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Life or death. Ah, mm, mm, Well, there's pros and cons for both. I mean, a lot of pros over here. That's not how we think, but it's how Paul thinks. And this needs some explaining, this needs some understanding. And so uh, we're going to look carefully at this because I believe that what God is wanting to do is challenge us about how we see things and challenge us as to what our focus is to be about. This might seem like upside down thinking, but actually it's Paul who sees things as they really are. And we need to get our vision in line with his So let's go through these three statements and try and comprehend why he thinks this way. First one, his imprisonment. What has happened, he says. What has happened to me? This is shorthand for three years of unjust suffering that Paul has gone through. After false accusations, uh, he was imprisoned in Jerusalem and then he was kept uh, in various prisons for the next three years basically because of official corruption. They were, uh, it actually states they would have let him go if he'd, if he'd given them a bribe, but he didn't and so they kept hold of him. And then they knew that there were some crowds that didn't like Paul very much and so they said, oh, well, we'll keep you in because uh, we want the crowds on our side. So Paul's been in prison for three years because of this kind of behaviour. And uh, from that imprisonment, he was then transported uh, from kind of his homeland uh, to Rome. And that journey involved going by ship, and that ship nearly shipwrecked. Well, it it kind of did shipwreck, uh, and they were kind of washed up on shore. And then Paul eventually makes it to Rome, and he is there, as I said, under house arrest. And to be under house arrest means that you may be in your own place because you've got to provide everything for yourself, but you are constantly chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard. These were Caesar's elite force. They were the toughest, most loyal Roman soldiers. So that's been Paul's past three years. Arrest, corruption, near death, chained to a horrible soldier. And Paul thinks, brilliant! Paul thinks, this is great news! And we think, what? Paul, this is bad news. You used to have freedom. You went all over the place preaching the gospel. Now you can't move. You can't get out of the house that you're in. You've lost your liberty. You're chained to a thug. You're in a city that hates Christians and hates Christianity, that burns Christians for entertainment. You need to get as far away from there as possible. Paul sees it completely differently. We might think, Paul, you're stuck with that soldier all day long. Paul thinks, that guy's stuck with me. All day long. As long as his shift is, he can't get away from me. I'm going to talk to him. 
I'm going to talk to him. I am going to tell him the good news about Jesus. And the good news about Jesus has such power in it that even the most unexpected, unlikely people will hear it and believe that it's true. And there's a whole squadron of these guys, and they have to work in shifts. I'm going to speak to all of them. They are all going to come in, and they're all going to hear, and even the ones who don't like it are going to go and tell their mates what they heard me say, and so their mates are going to have heard it. And then, in the center of the most important city on earth, the news about Jesus is going to be getting out there. And so he talks with them, and before long, as he says, the whole imperial guard and all the rest, maybe he means the people in the palace, all the others around uh, the emperor, have heard the gospel. And it doesn't stop there. Maybe the couple of guards, they became Christians. And when they weren't chained to Paul, they were able to go and meet with the other, uh, the other Christians in the Roman church. And when they walked in, the other Christians thought, look what God's just done. He can do that. He can do that. When even a Praetorian guard hears the gospel, he can become a Christian. I can go and tell anyone. I can go out and tell other people. And so that is what they did. The gospel advances. Paul is arrested. The gospel advances. That's how it goes. Now, I think if you were the Philippians, you are not at all surprised when you hear this. In fact, you probably laugh when you get this bit of the letter. You're like, of course, Paul. You went into prison and everyone got saved, of course, because that's what happened in Philippi. Paul was arrested there as well. It's just one of the occupational hazards of being a Christian. And he is in prison, and it's midnight, and him and his friend, uh, what are they doing? Of course, they're worshipping Jesus, uh, because that's what they do. And they're worshipping, and God sends an earthquake, and it bursts open all the doors in the prison, and actually shakes off all the uh, chains that people had around them. And the jailer thinks, oh no, what on earth has happened? I'm going to have to kill myself, because all my prisoners will have escaped. And Paul says, we haven't escaped. We're still here. We're totally relaxed. You should come in, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And the jailer comes in, hears the gospel, becomes a Christian and all his family does. And so when Paul hears that, when Paul writes to Philippians, hey, guess what? People are being saved whilst I'm a prisoner. One guy in particular is like, well, of course they are. And actually the whole church is thinking, of course they are. What is it about Paul's way of thinking that enables him to turn what we would see as awful and hopeless situations into brilliant opportunities that lead to many people blessed? being blessed. How is he able to remain focused in this way, even when he's a prisoner chained to a violent soldier? Because when we tell the story like that, and you tell the end of the story, we all think, of course, I'd do that too. <laughs> Why doesn't Paul see all the bad stuff in front of his eyes? Because that's usually what we see, isn't it? Because when bad stuff happens to us, that's what we, we feel, I'm confronted with this. This is what's going on. When people ask us, how's it going? We say, well, this is what I see. Why isn't Paul like this? It's because he sees everything through the gospel. His vision is always gospel-shaped. And the gospel shows us that in the plans of God, even the very worst thing can be used for good. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and crucified in order that we could be set free from the mess we've made from, of our lives and live an eternal life. Death leads to life. That is the shape of the gospel. The greatest good news came from the most terrible moment. This isn't that every cloud has a silver lining. This is that God can turn anything to gold. 
If you believe in a God who can raise the dead to life, you can hope for that same pattern in your circumstances. You can see past them. You can see into them, into what God could do through them. That's how the gospel shapes Paul's vision. And that's how he wants it to shape our vision. And actually when we reflect on our lives sometimes, we think, when did I most grow in God? When did he do that amazing thing? Was it when everything was going so well and smoothly? Often not. Often it was in the darkest place. Often it was in the hardest moment. It was then that God gave the breakthrough. It was then that we saw him in a new way. It was then that he took what was dead and made it alive. It's what he does. It's how he works. The gospel also tells Paul that he is a servant, not a master. He starts his letter, he identifies himself, most translations say Paul, a servant. The word is bond servant, which is more than just a kind of, I come and go as I like, I'm a servant, I'm employed by this person. Not employer, it's much closer to slave, but we're always worried that slave, because it's connotations, we don't like using that word. Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. He is totally in charge of my life. And in today's passage, he states, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Who has put him there? In prison. God has. God, his master, has says, you're going there. And Paul says, you're the boss. Literally, you're the boss. You tell me where to go, that's where I go. And so he doesn't assess his circumstances by how well things are going for him. Am I enjoying my life? Is it going well? No, it's relevant. What does my heavenly master want me to do with this? What might he do through it? Why has he put me here? Not why has he put me here, but why has he put me here? This is difficult for us. Particularly if, you're, you know, if you've been uh, brought up in the West, you are, you are used to comfort. You, you, you are, and you're encouraged to expect it and to aim for it. It's one of the uh, museums uh, on the Royal Mile. I can't remember what it's called. I remember Andy and I went there and, and we were walking around and Andy just said, Andy said, I'm so glad I'm alive now because it was just so hard. So, like, you, I mean, you can't do and Nothing's easy in the past. And we've now come to this point where we expect things to be convenient and to be simple and to be quick and to be automatic and to be broadband and all these kind of things. And it makes us expect that of all of life. And when life doesn't happen like that, we think this is odd, this is wrong. I've got to fix this. I've got to get out of this. I need to get back uh, to comfort. That's supposed to be normal. And it just isn't. This way of thinking causes us to prioritize ourselves, which isn't a modern phenomenon at all. It puts us at the center of our story. And Paul doesn't do that. Paul is not at the center of his story. Jesus is at the center of his story. God, it's God's story. Paul is just part of it. He's just getting into it. And that's how Jesus lived. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus said, I don't do anything that I don't see the Father doing. And that same spirit of incredible obedience and submission that Jesus has can work in us. Paul says, I pray for the spirit of the Lord Jesus to be at work in me. We can ask for the same. We can get that same way of living within us. So what are those hard things? you're experiencing? What are those things for whom hard just seems a ridiculously small word to you? What are the things that are in front of your eyes? What are the things that are actually in front of your eyes, even when your eyes are closed, as it were? How could God use them for good? How could he use them for his good, for the good of others, even for your good? 
through the death, death to life pattern of the gospel? Will you believe him? Will you follow him through that? So that's the first thing. And the first crazy statement and how the gospel proves that it's true. The second is this opposition that Paul is going through. He was imprisoned, and because of his imprisonment, as we've said, people were inspired to preach about Jesus, which doesn't necessarily mean preaching like on a stage. They didn't have church to the stages, but to go around the place telling people about Jesus, some in public context, some in private. And some did this because they loved Paul. They're like, this is so wonderful what's happening to him. Let me tell you, they were inspired in that way. Others did it because they hated Paul. Now, he doesn't spend much time explaining why the haters do this. So we don't know why they thought it was a good idea. We don't know why they think, I know what will really wind Paul up. Let's tell people about his message. But that's what they were doing. He says they're motivated by rivalry or selfish ambition. Now, this kind of thing makes cool Christians, as many of us are, very nervous. People who we don't trust are telling people about Jesus. That is the most awkward thing in the world for some of us. Because we are desperate for Christianity's brand to be well respected. And the internet is full of people who are not helping this at all. Some of them are people like those who Paul describes, they have dodgy motives. Others of them are very well-meaning, but they have dodgy hair and dodgy songs. And we see these things and we just think, no, no, just stop. Just don't say, don't, it's much, much better. We would say, it's much better that you don't say anything. Please, just stop. Maybe if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and the reason is because you think, well, listen, I've seen some of them. I don't want to be like that. And that can't be true. If, that's, if people like that are saying it, it just cannot be true. If you're a Christian here, you're a believer, and it's the fear that, you know, weirdos, let's call them that, trigger in you (laughs) that makes it so hard for you to tell people about your faith. Because you think, what if I do that? What if I become like them? You are so worried about what you have to say. You have to say everything right. You must say nothing offensive, or no one will believe you, and you end up saying nothing. There's a fear that grips us. Now, Paul isn't casual about people who proclaim a false gospel. So when people say things like, behave better and God will love you, or God wants you to be rich, when he hears things like that, he's furious. He comes down like a ton of bricks. But when people are telling other people about Jesus and the message of Jesus, Paul is overjoyed. <coughs> he doesn't just say, I mean, it's fine. He says, I rejoice. (laughs) And we say, what is wrong with you? I mean, you're good at it, Paul. I mean, you say something, sometimes it's a bit awkward. But I mean, you know, you're one of the better ones anyway. Just more people like you and did it like you, it'd be fine. But Paul rejoices that people who don't like him and for selfish rivalry ambitions, uh, reasons, are preaching the gospel. He rejoices in that. He knows their motives are bad. And he is not bothered. Some of you are amazed by this. I mean, you kind of should be. We all are. What is wrong with him? 
why does he say, he sets it up, doesn't he? He says, some people are preaching out of rivalry and selfish ambition. And he, you know, we're all like, I know. <laughs> but Paul says, what then? What do you mean, what then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's a question of focus. Three times in the paragraph, he's talking about these rivals. So this is what we know they're saying. They are talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus, the exact representation of God. Come amongst us so that we might know what God is like, who God is. They're talking about Jesus and that he died for our sins. And this was God's great loving plan and justice at work. They're talking about Jesus who has been risen victorious from the dead, is alive right now, running all things, and he's going to return one day to make everything new, and who is offering eternal life. They're talking about that Jesus. And if those things are being preached, Paul says, I don't care who's saying it, or why they're saying it, or what they say about me, because that is what matters. That news, that gospel, is what matters. In terms of Paul's own reputation, it's like, oh, I'm a servant. It's about the master. It's not about me. He doesn't care. And in terms of these dodgy motives, Paul knows the gospel's very powerful. Really powerful. Much more powerful than you think. Its life-changing power can work through anyone. Anyone. And when you think, if you're a Christian here, how did you become a Christian? Was it because the coolest, the smartest, the most powerful preacher ever spoke to you directly and you were convinced? Or did someone in Sunday school tell you about Jesus? Or did someone say something and suddenly you can't even remember what they said, but you knew in that moment that it was true? Much more likely that, isn't it? God delights to use the weak things that his power might be seen for what it is. So we can't say, well, basically, someone was very impressive. And someone answered all my questions. And someone did this amazing thing. Now, I, the power of God broke in. The gospel advances when its best preacher is arrested. The gospel advances when people with bad motives preach it. You cannot stop it advancing. But you can miss out on helping it to do so. If this fear, this paralysis of perfect preaching performance grabs hold of you, no, I can't. God says, I'm giving you live ammunition. Putting live ammunition in your mouth when you talk about Jesus. You just see what it does. When opportunities come, let's take them. Final thing. So his imprisonment advances the gospel. Actually, it turns out it does. Opponents can preach the gospel. Paul doesn't mind. Actually, it turns out he's right. Third thing, death. What do I want to happen next? Paul asks himself. Release from prison or execution? Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Have you ever met someone as joyful and successful as Paul clearly is here who considers death to be the more attractive of the two options before him? 
I mean, this isn't someone whose life's going awfully. He isn't saying, guys, this is, I mean, I've just come to the end of everything. You know, I just don't know what's going to happen. I, I'd rather, I, I mean, like, I'll take my chances with death. That's not what he's saying at all. He talks all the way around this, doesn't he? About, I could do this, and we could do this, and if I'm here, I'll do this, and this, and this. I, there's so much to do. But there's also what will happen if I die. Why is it that most of us do everything we can to live as long as possible and to stay death? Why is it we live in a culture that just says, got to keep alive? Why is it that Paul thinks something different? Well, as you've probably guessed by now, it's because of focus. It's because of what he is focused on, or to be more accurate, who he is focused on. Paul's entire philosophy is described in this passage. This is one of these most famous lines. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is Paul's life. That is who he is. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now we've seen the first half of that work in the two statements we've seen so far. So he's saying, yeah, I'm in prison, but I'm still living for Christ. So great. People are preaching the gospel. They're bad people. It's fine. I'm living for Christ. I want Christ to be exalted. I'm totally okay with that. But in this third thing, this life and death question, we see both parts of this now tugging at him. To live is Christ. There's much fruitful service for me to be done. But to die is to be with him. And so there's this tugging at work. Why? Because he knows Jesus. About 30 years prior to writing this letter, Paul encounters Jesus from the first, for the first time. He's uh, travelling to Damascus and the glory of the resurrected Christ appears to him and knocks him to the floor. And he knows that everything he's believed before that was wrong and that Jesus is right. And he gives his life to Jesus in that moment. And that is obviously a defining moment in his life. But it's just the beginning. Since then, Paul had got to know Jesus more and more. And as he got to know him more, he loved him more. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God on earth with us now. And, encouraged the, and he encountered the love and the encouragement of Jesus through the Spirit repeatedly. He knew joy in the Spirit that wasn't just about his circumstances. He knew the presence of God. He knew the guidance of God. He knew that God was with him at all times. And this kept happening. This is happening for decades now in his life. He read about God in the scriptures, seeing the character of God revealed through history and God's great plan of salvation. And he just reads about this and just there's such depth to it. It's so amazing. Now I see more and more about who Christ is as I see all the promises that were fulfilled in him. He spoke to God in prayer, agonizing and celebrating, asking and thanking, deepening his relationship with him over decades of conversations. And he followed him in daily obedience to the small things, in questions of morality, and then in mission as well, in preaching the good news, even when it got him into more and more trouble. He kept following God, and through this, he learned to trust in God's amazing ability to work all things for good. All that he saw and heard, experienced and learned, made him more and more in love with Jesus. His love grew and grew and grew. And he knew that what might seem to him like a huge growing thing of this love now is just a, 
moment, a mite of dust compared to what is to come when we step into eternity with God. Everything that he currently experienced, like a taste, a glimpse, a shadow of the real thing which is promised for all who put their trust in Jesus, that he is going to bring them into his presence for all eternity. And this is why Paul says, I mean, I've had 30 years of it and it's wonderful. And if God gives me another 30 on this earth, I'll praise him for that. But to depart and be with Christ is far better. I'll be face to face with him then. I will hear his audible voice then. I will have all the weaknesses of me, all the parts that doubt, all the bits that get pained and distracted. They will have all have gone and I'll be made into a new body and I'll be with him forever. And the veil that currently exists, that we see the light shining through, but with still a veil, it will have gone. And we'll be with him forever. And if you love God... You are excited about that. No wonder he was eager for it. No wonder he was, you know, curious. Is it now? Is now the time? Is now the time that all that I've been waiting for, all that I've been going, is it now that I'm going to see the fullness of it? In his own metaphor, death is, is the end of being engaged and the beginning of the fullness of married life. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain because for me to live is Christ. Because I've focused on Jesus, because I have learned about him, because I've got to know him as he truly is, I am thrilled about the prospect of being dead because then I'll be really alive. God really wants all of us to think this way because it's the truth. It'll be fine if you as a Christian have a life of kind of fearing, I don't know what's going to happen, and then you're just going to have a wonderful surprise. Because he's very gracious, God. But he wants you to be excited about it. He wants you to run towards it, as it were. Many of us have encountered Jesus, and we've given our lives to him, and the meeting doesn't have to be as dramatic as Paul's, and the consequences of following him don't have to be as dramatic as Paul's. But the focus is, God wants us to be focused in this way. Eyes fixed on Christ. And to be as excited about life after death as he was. This is not, Christianity is not, keep calm and carry on. It is get excited, get delighted and carry on until he takes you to what is better. It's a completely different thing. Carry on learning about and loving Christ. Carry on talking with him and learning to listen to him. Learning what it's like when he pauses and learning what it's like when he smiles and you can't see it. And learning what it's like when he fulfills his plans right in front of your eyes. Learning what it's like when he comes through. Learning what it's like to wait for him to do that. Learning what it's like to know his whisper in your heart. Learning what it's like to see him powerfully change people's lives even through you. Do whatever you can that does this for you. Find the things that fan into flame your faith in God and do them a lot. There's some things you're like, well, everything in moderation. Nothing in moderation about loving God. (laughs) We had communion this morning. Not simply as a remembrance. Paul says we do this to remember until he's coming back. It's like a forward-looking remembrance that he died for us and has given us life, and that we participate with him. That's why Jesus gave us a physical thing to do, because we are participating. We're not just saying, over there, somewhere, that's nice. We're participating with him. 
And there's the fullness. This is my provision. It's a tiny piece of bread, so it never really feels like it. But it is. It's your provision. And, and wine, and I, I know we had juice. I listened to some guys speaking recently. I thought this was very right. We're not going to necessarily change to wine. But, I mean, who has juice when they're really happy? <laughs> very excited. This is a time for celebration. Let's crack up the juice. <laughs> it's right and fitting sometimes, if it's appropriate for you. So I'm having a large glass of wine and celebrating. This is a celebratory moment that God has been so good to us and so wonderful to us and given us all that we need. Now you can just put the bread in your mouth and take a bit of drink or you can focus on him and turn these things into praise. It's why we gather every Sunday and we praise him. It's why we always have a band to lead us in songs of truth about him because we want to praise him because we are thrilled with him and want to become more thrilled with him. It's why we teach about him all the time. It's why we meet in small groups during the week to encourage one another and to strengthen one another and to pray God's goodness and grace for one another. It's why God has given us technology that enables us to connect with each other super easily. It's amazing how man have done this. This is God's plan. He wants you to be able to encourage one another all the time. He has made this possible. It's why we're to welcome his Holy Spirit Paul says that the Spirit is the deposit of the presence of God before the limitless inheritance to come. And so we we just invite him. So we did this morning. You can do this every day. Holy Spirit, just come and work in my life, however you want to do that. A touch of what is to come. And this means all things. A good view excites me about God because he made it. And one day he's going to remake it all. I'm going to see it with fresh eyes. That's why a good meal can enable us to praise God because he is a generous giver and has given to us his son and all other things. Everything we take, everything he gives us, everything there is around us, we turn to him. We see it through the gospel and the goodness of God. I'm going to finish up. I don't suppose the soldiers who guarded Paul had ever really had a prisoner like him before. Had they? He saw the world upside down to them, and they must have found him very strange, or at least some of them at first. He wasn't despairing. He was, in fact, excited and confident when they told him, hey, you know, so-and-so, he's preaching about Jesus. He rejoiced. He seemed as happy with the prospect of death as of life. And they must have thought, What is going on? And he said, I'll tell you what's going on. And as he did so, the resurrection power of God worked through his words in the hearts of some of them, and suddenly their world turned upside down, and they saw things as they really are. Maybe God's done that for you this morning. Maybe this morning, suddenly it makes sense. Suddenly you understand why Jesus died. Suddenly you understand why we're giving our whole lives to him, and you realize, I need to do the same. I need to give my life to him. Well, this is a moment for you to consider that and to commit to him. And we'd love to help you with that. You can either speak to myself afterwards. You can go and join, uh, go and speak to the, the team who are praying upstairs. They'll give you a Bible and they'll talk with you about the next step of what you can do to get hold of this full life. It will turn everything upside down, but it's the right way round. If you are a Christian already, I encourage you to fix your eyes on him 
again, the author and perfecter of our faith. And tell this news. It's very powerful, great news. That God is alive and brings life from death. A new way of life. And it can start right now.